This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 3, The Parthian Empire. last week's episode, we told the desperate story of how Darius III lost control of his Achaemenid Persian Empire. The Macedonians took chunks of the empire away from Darius, forcing Darius to personally take command of his army. However, even with Darius commanding his military, the Macedonians, under the rule of Alexander III, continued to score unlikely victories which disintegrated the Achaemenid Empire and undermined Darius's rule. Things became so bad that Darius was effectively assassinated by one of his own satraps before the entire empire was lost completely. Persia now belonged to Alexander and the Macedonians. Some of the most successful military commanders understand that in order to keep conquered territory you must respect the people you have conquered and often embrace their culture and spiritual feelings. By doing this you are much more likely to be accepted as a leader who may improve the lifestyles of your new subjects and avoid costly revolutions from within. The king of Macedon and conqueror of Achaemenid Persia, Alexander III, who is popularly known in history as Alexander the Great, showed respect to the Persian culture. Alexander married several Persian princesses including the daughter of Darius III, the man who Alexander recognised as the true last king of the Persians despite his usurpation by Bessus. Alexander's new territories were vast, and this radical change, after over 200 years of Achaemenid rule, was going to take some strong and organised leadership to be able to keep the new empire together and under Alexander's rule. There would be many local kings looking to take advantage of the situation and potentially rise up and take the wealth and riches associated with the autonomy of their own region. Alexander would need to strengthen his diplomatic relationships throughout his new empire and revitalise his army after many years of campaigning so that nobody would doubt their dominance. One of Alexander's first acts as the new emperor of Persia, would not be beneficial. He died in 323 BCE, and this would throw everything into turmoil. With such a vast empire, with such riches and opportunities, a great many potential successors emerged. Alexander was no more than in his 30s when he died, so 
no preparations had been made for the future. Had Alexander had known his own fate, then he may have elected his personal secretary to guide the empire in preparation for his infant son to take the throne when he came of age. But within 15 years of Alexander's death, his secretary, his son and his son's mother had all been murdered. Fame and fortune were up for grabs and nothing would be beyond certain individuals in their quest to become Alexander's successor. Seleucus Nicator In the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death, his trusted generals would endeavour to find a peaceful solution and attempted to draw up partition agreements for Alexander's empire. If you remember back to episode 20 of volume 2 where we tracked the fortunes of the Egyptian kingdom, we learned that Alexander's satrap of Egypt was a man called Ptolemy Soter. Ptolemy had the fortune of being a satrap of a territory on the western fringes of the Macedonian Empire, so he remained relatively unchallenged in his seat. This would be unlike the Babylonian satrap Seleucus, who like Ptolemy was a trusted comrade of Alexander back when he was alive. Seleucus would be run out of Babylon and would not be able to return there for nine years and until Ptolemy was able to assist him. Quite what the populace of the former Achaemenid lands felt about their Macedonian conquerors is a matter for debate. Histories written from the Greek lands declare Alexander as a great liberator and moderniser of the Persian lands. But those written from the Persian lands describe Alexander as a bloodthirsty brute who would stop at nothing to achieve his goals. So Seleucus Nicator's position as the satrap of Babylonia may not have been well received by the people of those lands to begin with, but when Seleucus returned, he was there to stay. The man who ran Seleucus out of Babylonia was Antigonus, another of Alexander's generals attempting to assert his claim to the riches of Alexander's fallen Macedonian Empire. Upon Seleucus' return to Babylon, he would have to defend it against the aggressions of Antigonus, but he would do this successfully. Antigonus would be forced out of the lands to the east of Babylon and Seleucus would absorb them into his own empire, the Seleucid Empire. The days of Alexander's Macedonian Empire were over. The Diadochi, who were the generals that inherited Alexander's empire, would come into conflict with each other over the balance of power throughout Alexander's lands. After Antigonus was defeated by Seleucus and others at the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BCE, Seleucus would sweep up some more lands into his own empire. The Seleucid Empire would now stretch from eastern Anatolia right the way across Mesopotamia and the Iranian plateau. Another powerful empire had emerged to the east called the Maurya Empire. 
with its heartlands in the modern country of India. And this would act as a buffer for Seleucus' eastern ambitions. The Seleucid Empire was large, but was certainly not as large as the Achaemenid and Macedonian empires which preceded it. Seleucus remained ambitious though, and although he had effectively been checked by the Maurians to his east, there were still ambitions to his west. The Egyptian kingdom was now firmly established by Seleucus's former ally Ptolemy Sota as the Ptolemaic kingdom, so Seleucus would turn his ambitions back to the lands of his origin on the other side as the Bosporus and Hellespont, namely Thrace and Macedon. This land had been ruled by another of Alexander the Great's generals, Lysimachus. Specifically, Lysimachus's rule of Macedon was briefly conducted alongside Pyrrhus of Epirus, who was a character we met in the episode about the Phoenicians back in Volume 2, Episode 9. Pyrrhus was the one who wreaked havoc in the Punic lands of Sicily, as well as the Roman Republic lands of the Italian peninsula. When Seleucus approached the lands of Lysimachus, the two armies engaged in battle at the Battle of Choropedium in Anatolia. Seleucus would win the battle, defeating and killing Lysimachus, and would travel on to Thrace to collect his prize. But on arrival, a man called Ptolemy Karaunos would assassinate Seleucus and take the kingdom for himself. Ptolemy Karaunos was a son of Ptolemy Sota, the king of Egypt who had died the year before. With Seleucus's death ended the age of the Diadochi, Alexander's generals, who had been fighting for the spoils of Alexander's empire since his death 30 years previous. So now, Alexander's Diadochi had all died and the next generation of history had passed. So what for the Seleucid Empire? The Seleucids would spend much of the 3rd century BCE fending off their neighbours on all sides. The lands in the northeast of the Seleucid Empire, the doorway to the Scythian lands of the Kazakh steppe, still had cultural remnants of Alexander's invasion two or three generations earlier. Diodotus Sota was the satrap of the Seleucid satrapy of Bactria and he would declare his satrapy's independence from the Seleucid Empire around the middle of the 3rd century BCE. This would represent the start of an independent Greco-Bactrian kingdom, a fusion of two cultures. The significant declaration of independence could have been in reaction to a weakening of the Seleucid Empire and the fact that the Egyptian pharaoh Ptolemy III was threatening the very existence of the Seleucid Empire as a whole. The Seleucid satrapy to the west of Greco-Bactria was Parthia and their satrap Andragoras followed the Greco-Bactrians in declaring their independence from the Seleucid Empire. However, Parthian initial fortunes were somewhat different. 
a local leader called Arsakis led his people called the Pani against Andragoras and overthrew him and his regime, taking the former Seleucid satrap of Parthia for themselves. This would signal the beginnings of Parthia as a significant player in Persian history. Despite all of these setbacks for the Seleucid Empire in the middle of the 3rd century BCE, a Ptolemaic invasion was repelled and the Seleucid Empire survived. Later in the century, a king called Antiochus III came to the throne of the Seleucid Empire in the year 222 BCE. Antiochus III's reign represented a significant change in fortunes for the Seleucids. Antiochus would successfully bring both Parthia and Greco-Bactria back into the Seleucid sphere of influence, turning them both into vassal states of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus III would carry the Seleucid Empire into the 2nd century BCE, where his ambitions got the better of him when his campaigns into Anatolian lands captured the attention of the Roman Republic. Antiochus would spend his final years bickering with the Romans over lands either side of the Bosporus and Hellespont. And Armenia, Parthia and Greco-Bactria would take control of their own affairs once again, away from the influence of the Seleucids. So although the Seleucids experienced a period of success under Antiochus III, this would not last. The fall of the Maurian Empire to the east of Greco-Bactria allowed the Greco-Bactrians to capitalise on the power vacuum on the eastern side of the Khyber Pass, where an Indo-Greek kingdom was established. Seleucid Decline Way back in episode 7 of volume 2, where we focused on the Assyrian Empire, we introduced the Assyrian Emperor, Tikulti Ninurta I, who is attributed as the first ruler to title himself as the King of Kings. The title became a geographical tradition, with various Median and Achaemenid rulers also stylizing themselves in the same manner. Now, we're going to introduce the man who would be the new king of kings, and he would be a Parthian king called Mithridates. With the emergence of the Han dynasty in the lands of China, trade links between Eurasian lands in the west and Chinese lands in the far east meant that the world was modernising. The Parthians would be in a great position to influence this trade route, being closer to China than the Seleucids. Mithridates I would be the canny ruler who would exploit this opportunity to add wealth to the Parthian kingdom. The Parthians would extend their influence westwards by taking control of the Median city of Ecbatana and securing a link to the Strait of Hormuz from the Caspian Sea. This meant that there was absolutely no trade route eastwards for the Seleucids. Mithridates 
would build the foundations of an empire that would rival the Seleucids in size by the end of his lifetime. Towards the end of Mithridates' lifetime, he would successfully conquer the city of Babylon and the Seleucids would try to retake this after his death. However, such was the pressure being imposed on the Seleucids by the Romans in the west that the Seleucids could not depose the Parthians and now the Parthian Empire was well and truly the replacement of the Seleucid Empire. Towards the end of the 2nd century BCE, the Seleucids had been restricted to the lands of the Levant and a small area in the south of Anatolia. Their area of influence was a mere fraction of the extensive lands under their control just a hundred years previous, when Parthia was a small satrapy being engulfed and subjugated by the mighty Seleucid Empire. Mithridates II came to the Parthian throne in the year 124 BCE. Mithridates II would steady the Parthian Empire which was a little bit unstable after the death of Mithridates I with a couple of short-lived monarchs. The Seleucids really had no ability to establish a foothold in their region and fight for their former lands. More and more territories were establishing independence from the Seleucids, recognising that their fortunes were heading in the wrong direction under Seleucid rule. It would actually be the Armenians that would subjugate the Seleucids under their king Tigranes II. What the Armenians had done under Tigranes II is establish an area of influence stretching from the Caspian Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, which may have been necessary considering how powerful the Roman Republic had become with their influence over territories in Anatolia and also over the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. The Parthians would have certainly had a close eye on the latest political positions of both the Armenians and the Romans and would have known the importance of being ready for potential conflicts on their western border. As Roman influence expanded throughout Anatolian lands, they would inevitably come into conflict with the Armenians. This would culminate in the Battle of Tigranokerta in 69 BCE, where the Roman Republic dealt the Armenians an unlikely defeat which would drive the Armenians out of what remained of Seleucid lands and under the influence of the Romans. Rome would soon get bored with the Seleucid project with there being no stability in the propped up re-established kingdom and by 63 BCE the Romans had simply absorbed Seleucid lands into their empire. The Seleucids were now a part of history and the Romans had also subjugated the Armenians which brought them to the borders of the Parthian Empire. Parthia and Rome. The significance of the borders of Parthia and Rome meeting for the first time cannot be overstated as an important chapter in world history. 
the rivalry between Roman nations and Persian nations lasted for centuries and the first episode of this rivalry was a shocker. With Armenian lands now under both Roman and Parthian rule, there would be an inevitable clash between the two giants. The Roman army in this area of the world was under the rule of Marcus Licinius Crassus and he would take an army of over 40,000 to engage with the Parthians at the ancient town of Carre in the far south of the modern day country of Turkey near the Syrian border. The Parthians did not have the same numbers as Crassus's combined Roman legions and were in grave danger of being overrun by this incredible war machine. The one military tradition that the Parthians would possess is that they were expert horsemen, as one might expect from a civilization built upon a migration from the direction of the Eurasian steppe. However, the Parthians were hugely outnumbered. The two armies would engage at the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BCE. For the Romans, the skilled horseback offensive that they faced was like nothing they'd ever faced before. The Parthians would use a strike and run tactic, riding towards the Roman infantry and showering them with arrows. This approach would be so effective, with many Roman soldiers being fatally wounded, leading to a state of panic and retreat for the Roman legions. The Parthians would not only win the battle, but they would also kill the Roman commander Crassus, which would send shockwaves through the entire Roman Republic. The Parthians had scored a famous and unlikely victory. The outcome would create a tense front between the Parthians and the Romans, with Armenia caught in the middle. The Romans would continue to try to build the strength of their republic, expanding and subjugating lands on and around their fringes. So it was only a matter of time before they came back to the Parthians for another go. The Parthian king, Orodes II, would this time be present at the battle when the Romans returned under the command of Mark Antony. The two sides would be locked in a state of war with each other for a number of years. Initially, the first conflict in the year 40 BCE resulted in a stalemate, but the war would continue after Orodes II was assassinated by his own son, Phraates IV, who was determined to be the Parthian king. Phraates IV was a ruthless king and he would kill many of his own family members in order to secure his own position as the king of the Parthians. This would give Phraates an unpopular reputation with the Parthians, who even tried to organise a usurpation to get him off the Parthian throne. However, one thing that the reign of Phraates IV would see is the creation of a peace treaty with the Romans, where the Parthians would grant the Romans the ability 
to annex Armenia. Now this might be the time to either confirm or dispel what could be an urban myth. The last action in a confrontation can be called, in the English speaking world, a parting shot. And this could make sense due to the fact that it is an offensive gesture by a departing individual. However, some linguistic experts believe that the origin of this term comes from a phrase coined since over 150 years ago, a Parthian shot. The Parthian shot refers to the war tactic of the Parthians, where they would feign retreat, drawing the enemy into a complacent pursuit, whereby the Parthians would turn and strike at the favourably fragmented front line. Although this is a wonderful factoid, there is evidence of both phrases being in use simultaneously in history, so we cannot say for sure whether the phrase parting shot derives from the phrase Parthian shot, although it is not impossible. The next chapter in this fascinating exchange between Parthia and Rome follows the Reformation of Rome. In the year 27 BCE, the Roman Republic was replaced by the Roman Empire under its first emperor, Augustus, previously known as Gaius Octavius. Augustus's attitude towards Parthia was one of diplomacy and this makes sense because each time the mighty Roman army had attacked the Parthians, they came up short due to their inability to outwit their enemy. So the Romans and the Parthians would agree not to waste any more precious military resources on these clashes with each other. Armenia would remain a vassal state of the Roman Empire during this period. Unfortunately, there was still a great deal of distrust between the Romans and the Parthians, highlighted by the Parthians' decision to place one of their own royal family on the Armenian throne, following the death of the Armenian monarch in the year 36. The Romans would still claim suzerain authority over Armenia regardless of this. The two superpowers both clearly wanted to avoid conflict, but both clearly wanted to have influence over Armenia so it had to be only a matter of time before tensions would rise again. Two vital events would occur in the 50s. Firstly, the Parthians would successfully put Tiridates I on the Armenian throne, meaning that the Parthian Arsacid dynasty was now the royal family of Armenia. The Arsacids had ruled Parthia since the 3rd century BCE. Secondly, the somewhat eccentric Emperor Nero would take control of the Roman Empire in the year 54. Nero would aggressively depose the Arsacid king of Armenia and install his own man instead. The Parthians would not tolerate this action and engaged the Romans in military conflict at the Battle of Randea, where they would hand the Romans an embarrassing defeat. 
once again the Parthians had stood up to and frustrated the Romans yet again and prevented them from having any kind of influence over Parthian lands and the trade routes beyond them. Still, the Roman Empire needed to be respected and a treaty needed to be negotiated which recognised that the Arsacid king Tiridates I should remain on the throne of Armenia and Nero agreed to personally crown him. So this would mean that Armenia, still a client state of the Roman Empire, would be ruled by a king related to the Parthian royal family. Many Romans would see this as a loss for the Romanians and a loss of Armenia, even though it legally wasn't. With all of this drama on the Parthian Empire's western front, the emergence of a new entity on the eastern borders of Parthia almost went unnoticed. In the former lands of the Greco-Bactrians, just east of the lands of Parthian origin, a nomadic group who the Chinese appeared to have a good knowledge of settled these lands among the descendants of the Greco-Bactrians, symbolising the emergence of the Kushan culture, which are totally unrelated to the Kushites of Africa, just for the record. So the status of Parthia being flanked by the Romans in the west and the Kushans in the east and having a branch of their own royal family on the Armenian throne would persist for the remainder of the first century. The second century. Back on the western front and generally speaking the Parthians had managed to keep Parthian Arsacids as the royal family of Armenia. As long as the Romans felt that they had some authority over Armenia they tended to leave things as they were. The Parthians really didn't need to feel in control of Armenia but the fact that their own royal dynasty was the same royal dynasty on the throne of Armenia meant that there was less likelihood of competition for the Parthian Empire's throne. So the political situation was not a bad one for either side. The capital city of Parthian Persian Empire was in Mesopotamia, on the banks of the Tigris River. Its name is Tesiphon, although you may hear it also called Ctesiphon by those who pronounce the otherwise silent C at the beginning of its name. Tesiphon was built in very close proximity to the Seleucid capital city of Seleucia. The emperor of Rome going into the 110s was Trajan, who by this time was in his late 50s. Trajan decided that he was less than satisfied with the political situation of Armenia, believing that the Parthians had far too much influence over the kingdom than Trajan was comfortable with. So Trajan decided that it was time to react and started plotting to take military action. Trajan's approach would be far more considered than that of his predecessors, who had been outwitted by their Parthian opposite numbers. Trajan's first action was to take control of Armenia, and he had managed to succeed in this act in around the year 114. However, 
Trajan knew that he had to deal the Parthians a punishing blow to ensure that when the Romans returned to Rome, that the Parthians would not be so quick to re-establish a political upper hand in the Armenian region of the Middle East. So therefore Trajan navigated the Tigris River and by the year 116 was taking the land of the Parthian Empire and not just the borderlands. Trajan wanted to take control of Mesopotamia and its surrounding lands and was now approaching the Parthian capital city of Ctesiphon. Trajan's next act would be astonishing. He would take the Parthian capital of Ctesiphon and extend his influence all the way down to the Persian Gulf. This was a loss of territory that the Parthians had not experienced previously. The Romans deposed the Parthian king Osroes I, putting their own puppet ruler on the throne, Osroes' own son, Parthamaspates. No European had made such successful campaigns into Asian territory since Alexander the Great. The next step would seem to be to press eastwards and make the entire Parthian Empire a Roman client. However, the fortunes were now switched to the Parthians. Jewish revolts in the lands of the eastern Mediterranean would become a huge problem for the Romans, who would have to spend a lot of resource dealing with this civil uprising which led to the Ketos War. Emperor Trajan would die in the year 117, so the Romans had lost their great and successful leader. The Parthians knew that the time was right to reclaim their capital city from the Romans and moved in to take back Ctesiphon and expel the Romans, as the Romans had recently done to them. Trajan's successor was Hadrian, and Hadrian would go back to the traditional diplomatic relationship with the Parthians, not wanting to overreach himself and preferring to consolidate the Roman position. King Osroes I of Parthia would re-establish himself as the king of Parthia, replacing his own son Parthamaspates, who fled the Parthian Empire in shame. Ultimately, the situation would return to how it was before Trajan's Parthian campaign, but for the fact that Armenia was now under Roman influence and the Parthians had been proved to be vulnerable in their own homelands for the first time. Although the Romans would successfully attack the Parthian capital again on multiple occasions, during the remainder of the 2nd century, the Parthians managed to prevent the Romans from making the kind of territorial incursions that Trajan had made during his Parthian campaign. However, the Parthians were showing signs of vulnerability and it does appear that at the start of the 3rd century, a new entity from within the Parthian Empire was starting to gain some form of influence in the area of Persis. If you remember, the area of Persis was the same area of origin for the Achaemenids over 600 years previous, before they lost their empire to the Macedonians and then the Parthians. So next week we are going to explore the story of this new power 
in Persis, and what consequences there would be for the Parthian Empire as a whole. Well, there you go. What a long episode that was, and full of information. Oh, goodness me. We were introduced to much in the way of the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic before that, and uh, it's a fascinating period. The conflict between the Romans and the Persians, and indeed, if you go back further still, when you look at Alexander the Great, it seemed like there were two great entities either side of that Hellespont Bosporus position where you had Europeans on one side, heavily influential Europeans, and then heavily influential Iranians on the other side. And uh, it was it lasted for centuries and centuries. And it's a fascinating chapter in history. So I'm glad that I've been able to bring a large portion of that to you this week. Next week, we'll continue the story. We'll go onwards and continue the chronological story into the next phase. So you've got that to look forward to. It's the last chronological episode on the Persians, and then we're going to explore a bit about Persian religion after that. So we've still got plenty to come in relation to the Persian empires. One of my biggest struggles this week was learning how to pronounce everything and I bet you anything that I haven't got it right. So, But then again, I think I can't win because in certain cases I, I find that um, things are pronounced uh, in multiple different ways depending on where you go in the world and uh, depending on what the individual's personal preference is. So I can't win, so I'm just going to end up taking all of the rotten fruit that's going to be thrown at me for getting pronunciations wrong and just uh, and just suck it up, I think. Now, if you want to support the podcast, of course you can do that. Just go straight over to the History of the World podcast website, which is historyofthewordpodcast.com, and head to the Patreon link where you can make a monthly contribution for as little as $1 a month. There are rewards, I'm not going to go through them all here, but you can read all about them at the Patreon pages. And uh, I'm not sure if I welcomed Pamela Witherspoon to the History of the World podcast Illuminati last week. So if I didn't, I'm welcoming you now, Pamela. Thank you very much for becoming a part of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And if you want to join the History of the World podcast Illuminati... All you need to do is sign up and make a financial contribution. If you can't stretch to that, then please do rate and review the podcast wherever you find us. Now, I think it's been a while since I've read out Facebook recommendations, so I'm going to read a few of them out. And forgive me if I've read any of these before, but I I do like to try and recognise anyone that uh, pays me a kindness, so... Here they are. Uh, Ian Kirkpatrick has recommended History of the World podcast on Facebook. Has put fantastic, insightful, and Chris makes it also approachable. This is essential listening to anyone with an interest in history. Stephen Hetherington writes: the fact that Chris is a layman makes this podcast so good. I feel like I am listening to any bloke I could meet in the pub. Although he is a bloke with a passion that has followed that passion. Leroy Asher has put, I just finished volume one, looking forward to volume two. And John Pruce has put, uh, if you're concerned about where we are, 
be it in art or science or literature or anything it helps to know how we got here you won't remember everything you hear on this podcast but chris might help you fill in the blanks on stuff that interests you when the podcast is concluded it will remain an excellent source for research for generations to come and karen obando has put my very favorite podcast so much to learn I'm constantly impressed with Chris's research and organisational abilities. All the information is so perfect, organised and presented all around. Very excited about this. Cheers to you, Chris. Um, They're all so kind, aren't they? All those messages. Thanks very much. Um, And uh, if I haven't read your message out, forgive me. And uh, do give me a reminder. Just give me a nudge and say, listen, mate, you haven't read out my message please do and i'll be happy to do it i'll be happy to do it Uh, regrettably there are so many different forums from which this podcast is going out to that i do find it hard to keep up so forgive me if i ever make a mistake well i'm gonna wrap it up for this week now so thank you so much for listening i really do appreciate all your time and effort in listening to the podcast for your support for your comments it's the last podcast of 2019 Hope you had a lovely Christmas this week, just gone. And uh, we uh, will meet again in the year 2020. So I hope you have a fantastic celebration for the new year. And we will meet again in 2020. So we'll uh, look forward to another year of history and another year of the History of the World podcast. So until next week. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll hook up again very, very soon. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking patreon link email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us